Thanks for joining us today at Launch Point Church in Lebanon, Tennessee. We believe the Bible is the written word of God without error and useful for every part of our lives. We believe that through learning and teaching of the word, others might come to know God, find freedom, discover their purpose, and make a difference. Thanks. All right, we're in Ma- we're in Mark, and so I'm going to get started pretty quick. And we're in chapter three. If you have not been here for them, just, and I'm only going to do this a couple more times, maybe one or two more times to explain, but we're covering through the book of Mark by just discovering one passage out of each chapter. We're not going to do a verse by verse, full exegesis of the text, um, but the text that we choose to to teach from, we will we will go line by line on. And that text today, just so you know, is Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. And so I'll read those in just a moment. But I want to talk to you about today, what I want to talk to you about today is the fact that Jesus is willing to fight for you. This is so important in today's world that we understand that Jesus fights for you. He fights for us because of who he is, his character, that because he stands opposed to anything that would come against us whether it be physical or spiritual, Jesus stands in the gap. He is the intercessor, the great intercessor for us. He fights for us. And we see him fighting for us and the fact that God fights for us through all of Scripture. And I'm just going to read four samples of Scripture to you to, to show and to prove to you that God is for you and is willing to stand on your behalf. He says, what then, Romans eight thirty one? what then shall we say to these things. If God is for us, who can be against us? That is a just a declaration that no one can stand opposed to God's people because God is a God that's willing to fight for you and in fact in Christ Jesus fought for you. Amen. Exodus 14:14 14, 14 says the Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. Sadly, many of us don't want to keep silent. We decide that for whatever reason, our, our voice should be loud. That's a discussion for another time. Deuteronomy 20 verse 4 says, For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. Joshua 23, 10, One of your men puts a thousand to flight. For the Lord your God is he who fights for you, just as he has promised. He defends you. He's not backing down. He de- he stands opposed to anything that's willing to come against you. And because he's willing to fight, we should be willing to fight for him, for his name, for his cause. Amen? I, th- I think of God much like I think, well, there's several illustrations I could use, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick with this one. How many of you guys back in the day or saw the new remake of The Lion King know what I'm talking about? Okay, well, that's not enough of you, so I'm going to use a different illustration. My brother, when I was a kid, was my hero. He was, he's my big brother, but he's about this tall and about this big around. But to me, he was always a giant of a man. And, and that boy could fight. And we grew up, and it was rough, and we grew up in rough neighborhoods. And one day, a kid stole something from me. And my brother... I told my brother, I went to whine into my brother because that's what I did then. And he said, well, let's go. We're going to get your, 
your stuff back. It was a bicycle. He said, we're going to go get your bicycle back. And I said, all right, my brother's going to get my bicycle back. Right? I just knew he was going to fight for me, and I didn't have to worry about it. And so I went, and I, we walked through this little town, this little area that we lived in. It's kind of really the projects. but So we, we kind of make this alley, and there's these three or four kids, and this kid's on my bicycle. And I said, that's him right there, John. That's him right there. Get him. And my brother said, no, 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 no. You're going to get your bicycle, but I'm going to stand behind you. I'll be here if you need me, essentially what he said. This is the guy that we serve. We have to live this life. We have to walk victoriously in it, but we're able to walk victoriously in it because we have God standing behind us and says, as is the case in Romans, if God is for you, who can be against you? You stand there. You do whatever it is you need to do. Be confident in the fact that you are victorious. You are an overcomer, according to the word of God. And I'm right here with you. I haven't forgotten you. I haven't forsaken you. And I'm willing to fight for you. This is, this is the message that Jesus is trying to tell us, or what I'm trying to convey to you through the scriptures about Jesus in 1 through 5. And in verse chapter or chapter 2, we see multiple instances where Jesus fights or he has collisions with the religious elite. He's always fighting religious people for the heart of God over his people. And so we see three different instances in this chapter 2. We see him fighting or colliding, as it were, fighting with the Pharisees regarding his authority and his ability to forgive sin. And then we see him colliding or fighting with the Pharisees and the scribes, as we talked about last week, because he was willing to sit with sinners, because it was sinners that needed him, not, not those that would call themselves righteous. We talked about that last week. And then at the end of the chapter, he was colliding with the Pharisees about their fast and why, why are they not his, why aren't his disciples fasting? And so he was willing to stand against those who thought they knew something, who were self-righteous, who were willing to do whatever it took to oppress him and his people and God's people and say, no, I'm, I'm not going to allow that to happen. I'm here for them. I'm going to make sure that nothing comes against them. Amen? And we see evidence of this throughout Scripture every time Jesus stands between the religious elite and those who need him most. And so he's a fighter. He stands. Why he stands is because of who he is. And so I want to talk about that today, his character. Who he is and how he fights. And so I'm going to do that out of Mark chapter 1, or correction, chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. It says this, He entered again into a synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. They were watching him to see if he could heal them on the he they would to see if he would heal them on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. He said to the man with the withered hand, "Get up and come forward." And he said to them, "Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill?" But they kept silent. After looking around at them with anger. Grieved at, his, at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand, and he stretched it out, and his hand 
was restored. And I'll go through verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. So Jesus fights for you. Let me tell you why he fights for you first. And then in two additional points, I'm going to talk to you about how he fights for you. He fights for you because the why is because Jesus is faithful. Listen to me. Repeat after me. Jesus is faithful. He's not forgotten you. I've said that once already, twice already. I'm going to say it again. We sang a song at the beginning of the worship service that said, even so. Did y'all catch that? The, the, the words of that song that we repeated over and over and over again were even so. And let me tell you, even so is a slap in the face that it, against anything that would stand against the will of God in your life. My heart's broken. Well, even so, God is still king. Well, my family's falling apart. Even so, God is still here for you. My finances are destroyed. Even so, regardless, nevertheless, God is here. Even so, he has a plan for me. He knows that plan over my life. He cons conspires to accomplish that plan in my life. He's not left to me. He is my peace. He is my shelter. He is all the things that he says he is. And because I believe that, I can stand because he's faithful and say, who can stand against me? And the answer is no one can stand against you. Amen? And so I want you to know that Jesus is faithful. If you'll look in this text, it starts, interestingly enough, but it's, it starts in a way that we often overlook. He says, he entered again into the synagogue. It was Jesus' habit to be faithful. He was faithful to God, to God's house, and to God's people. When I say it was his habit to be faithful, we talked about this in the first one when we talked about the markers of Jesus' ministry. His habit was to preach, which is what he spent most of his time in the synagogues doing. And so, but he was he had the habit of doing it, which means he settled in his own heart that which he would do. If I have a habit, that means I settled in my spirit or in my heart, in my body, in my mind, what I'm going to accomplish. I tell people when they start working out, I obviously don't work out anymore, but when I used to tell people when they would start working out, do it long enough to settle it in your spirit. And then not doing it will bother you. The thing is, Jesus settled it in his heart. We should settle it in our heart to be faithful. I shouldn't have to make the same decision every Sunday about whether I'm going to church. I shouldn't have to make the same decision every Wednesday about whether I'm going to church. I shouldn't have to make the decision about am I going to give an offering. The only thing I have to do is about pray to God about what that offering should look like. But I've made a decision to do that. I don't have to make a decision every day to love my wife. I love my wife as a matter of habit because I settled it in my spirit when I made a decision to commit my life to her that I would love her all the days of her life. And so that is my habit. Faithfulness is Jesus' habit. And that should give us hope because faithful means unwavering. 
that whatever he has promised you, whatever he tells you is absolutely true. He's not going to decide today against something he decided yesterday. He is an unwavering and unshifting God. He is immutable, and who he is is who he will always be. His love for you yesterday is the same as it is today. It's the same tomorrow because he's a God that's faithful. You want to know why Jesus fights for you? Because he's faithful enough to have made a decision to love you before you were born, before the foundations of the earth, before he was nailed to a cross, even though he knew after the cross you would still sin, he still settled it in his spirit, to do it. And we should do nothing less. It was his habit, his settledness that proves who he is. No less than 10 times in the Gospels do we see Jesus mentioned being in the synagogue teaching or preaching. Just who he was. Matter of fact, According to the text of Scripture, when he got, he got baptized out of obedience, which is the reason all of us get baptized, it's the reason why we get baptized, went into the desert, was tempted by the enemy in every way imaginable, remained faithful to do what God said, remained faithful in the desert, and then immediately left the desert, according to Luke, went into the synagogue and was faithful to do what God told him to do. And this is what he says. He was so faithful to the synagogue, this is what happened. And Jesus, this is Luke chapter 4, verse 14. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. I'm going to skip ahead. Or no, I'm not. And he came to Nazareth where he'd come up, and as his custom, he entered the synagogue, as his custom, as his habit, because he had settled in his spirit to do so, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of Isaiah, the prophet, was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written. And this is what he says out of Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who were oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, which was the way things did. The rabbis would go in, they would be handed a scroll, they'd read a piece of it, and then they'd sit down and another rabbi would stand up and they'd read another piece of it. And he began to say to them, today... This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. You should listen, that thing I just read about you, that's me. They didn't accept it. But my whole point there, I'm going to not, it's a whole other sermon. My point is, over and over and over again, he came out of the desert, went to the synagogue. Came out of that synagogue, went to another synagogue. Came out of that synagogue, went to another synagogue. Where he opened the scroll and said, this is me. It's his habit to be faithful. Why do I spend this much time telling you this? One, because I think it's important in establishing faith and confidence in the God that we serve. Amen? Because if we serve an unfaithful God, what's the point? If we serve a God that's wavering, even if he promises me something, then I can't guarantee it. But we don't serve a wavering God. We serve an unwavering God. So those things that he tells us, we can be certain of. Amen? So a faithful person being unwavering, even when subject to scrutiny, 
hold on, I had this, is faithful. Because he is, because of who he is, he's not willing to compromise. And I'm reading this sentence specifically on purpose. There is no judgment that can be levied against a faithful man. Why was Jesus able to fight against the Pharisees? Because he was always faithful, which means he was always unwavering, which means he was always who he said he would be, which means when anybody accused him of something that wasn't his habit, those people around him were confident enough in who he was, they were able to say, no, that's not the Jesus I know. You know why I think Pastor Leonard is a faithful man? Because his lifestyle reflects a faithful man to me. If somebody come up to me, because I know how much he loves his wife, I know how much he loves his God, I know how much he loves his church, and they said, Pastor Leonard is cheating on his wife. Look, somebody even laughed. That's so ridiculous. We would fist fight over that. I wouldn't have to ask Pastor Leonard about that. We'd fight about it. You know why? Because I know that's not true. He is a man of faith, and because he's a man of faith, because he's unwavering, he can't be judged. Without, I mean, there'd have to be some significant proof, like somebody would have to come up and show me video or something, which I really don't want to see. But you get the idea. But my point is, Jesus is that faithful that even when someone accuses him, which was their habit to do, we should be able to say, not my Jesus. He's able to fight for us because he's never changed, because he's unwavering, because he's faithful. Amen? And so I think before we get into the how, we need to know the, the, the why. Because it's his character to fight for us. Over and over and over, like I said in Scripture, we see him standing in front of the Pharisees, blasting them. And in their blasting, this is what it says in verse 2, they were watching him. Boy, what a sad thing to say. Jesus walked into as a faithful man, the synagogue, and saw a guy with a withered hand, which means, if you look at it, it means an atrophied hand, basically useless hand. And instead of doing what ministers should do and minister to that man, do whatever they can to help that man, probably have been subjected to a beggar's lifestyle because he wasn't physically able to work. Instead of that, they spent their time watching Jesus to see what Jesus might do wrong. How often do we do that? That's a hard question. How often do we walk in our church and look at what other people might be doing wrong? If I had a nickel for every time I was judged by people who were supposed to love me. And I don't mean rightfully judged. I mean, I didn't like the way you said that or that hurt my feelings and we're not coming back, blah, 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 whatever. Guys, the Bible speaks against that. Sadly, even in the church, 
not just our own homes or our own circles of influence where we work, but even in the church. It's the person who we trust to hold the knife that stabs us in our back. And that's, that's horrible. They watched Jesus instead of worshiping Jesus. People come to watch church instead of worship in church. And we can do better. We should do better. Jesus speaks against these things. The board, or Paul speaks against these things. In Galatians, and this is a summary of 19 through 21, said, now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are, and then he lists a bunch of stuff, but in them are idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, and factions. Those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's pretty profound. That's pretty clear. There's not a lot of gray area there. If you do these things according to the flesh, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Let me take some time to break some of these words down for you. Enmity, being actively hostile towards someone else. That happens both inside and outside the church by people that claim to know Jesus. And it reflects on Jesus poorly and it reflects on those of us that are trying to do right poorly. We can do better. Strife means angry and bitter, angry and bitter disagreement. Disputes are argumentative attitudes. And factions, a small but organized dissenting group. So essentially the Bible's saying, if you act according to the flesh, are actively involved towards, hostile towards someone, argumentative in nature, angry and consistently have bitter disagreements, and are part of a small but organized dissenting group, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Boy, that'll preach. Not only will it preach, it ought to con not condemn us, but convict us. Because ain't none of us getting this right all the time. All of us have little groups that we're all, man, can you believe, look at, look at what she's wearing. Can you believe she wears something like that to church? Instead of saying, praise God, she's in church today. <laughs> let, our be, let our watching be about watching how we can help. Not watching how we can criticize. But they watched him. They watched him to, to persecute him. And sadly, we, we often do the same thing. I know that's a hard word. I know that's not a word anyone wants to hear. But God called us to be unified, not disunified. And when we do these things, the dissenting attitudes, the small argumentative groups, then we are destroying the unity in the body of Christ that Jesus, let me tell you the weight of this, that Jesus Christ died to put together. Jesus died to establish his church. And when we act in bitter disagreement, it destroys that which Christ suffered for. Boy, I don't want to carry the weight of that around. My pastor told me one, actually his, pastor's, his pastor told me one time, he said, pay attention to people in your church. He said, because they'll come in like they left or they'll leave like they came in. 
He said, they come in, they're all excited, they're evangelizing their friends, they're talking about this new place they found and how the Spirit of God is there and blah, 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 and they're super excited, and they start gathering their circles of influence around them. Until you say something you don't, they don't want you to say, until someone doesn't talk to them they thought should talk to them, until someone did something that they didn't agree with, and then they're going to leave the same way they came. They're going to start creating small dissenting groups, drawing people into them, and evangelizing them to leave. That's the danger of destruction of unity. And that's not what we're called to. And I know it sounds like I'm off topic, but I'm not because people are watching us. Let all of our actions begin by observing self. I, I, I was told or read or something many years ago that to not get angry when people criticize me. And I try really hard. But the idea between not, about not getting angry when people criticize you is because the inside of every criticism is some, even if it's microscopic, kernel of truth. And it's your job to dig that kernel out. Because like a pearl, there was a grain in there somewhere that eventually grew and eventually grew until the shell couldn't stand it anymore and it erupted. But when you start feeling that irritation, stop watching them and start talking to them. We get in trouble when we start keep watching and stop talking. If they would have talked to Jesus, if they would have just spent some personal one-on-one -on -one time with Jesus, these scribes and Pharisees, I guarantee Jesus wasn't scared to expose himself to them if they had a sincere heart. He came to save everyone. They are the unrighteous. They are the sinner, the sick that they didn't recognize. And so he, he, if they had a conversation, a sincere, legitimate conversation with him, they would have had to have stopped watching and started worshiping. And we should do the same. If there's some little grain of sand in us, before it turns into something that breaks open our shell, creates disunity, we should have the heart of Jesus and talk to him about it, talk to them about it so that that disappears and goes away. It's amazing how much a conversation will destroy it. A humble conversation will destroy it. And that's what we're called to. We're called to humility. Ephesians chapter 4 says this in verses 3 through 5, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one spirit, just as also you were called into one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. That's a lot of ones. What's it saying? It's saying, you're not you, and you're not you, and you're not you. You're a finger, you're a toe, you're an eye of the same body. Start acting like you're part of the same body. Unless you're willing to go home and take a hammer to your finger. Because in the spiritual realm, when you dissent, when you create factions, when you watch in church instead of worship in church, that's essentially what you're doing in the spiritual. You're taking a hammer to your own thumb, and it just doesn't make any sense. Amen? Everybody all right? That's why I love the Wednesday crowd. One, you pay attention, and, and two, I could talk a little sassy to you, and you don't get near as offended about it. All right. But Jesus was faithful. We should be faithful. Number two, Jesus fights for us because he is courageous. 
Mark chapter 3, verses 3 through 4 says this, And he said to the man with withered hand, Get up and come forward. And he said to them, it's lawful to do, Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. The Pharisees and scribes hated Jesus because he exposed them. Let me tell you, if they didn't hate him, him rebelling against them, or not rebelling against them, they were rebelling against him, but him speaking against them wouldn't have been possible if he wasn't courageous enough to do it. Because a coward won't face people who are dissenting and say, that's enough of that. And Jesus wasn't scared to do that. Jesus was willing to call out the scribe and Pharisee and tell them the truth of the spirit of the law, not the letter of the law. The whole concern was with the Sabbath. They were mad because he was doing something on the Sabbath. So why does the Sabbath exist? If, is it the time when God cuts himself off from his people? No, there's no time God cuts himself off from his people. And if God doesn't cut himself off from his people, then we should be able to minister to other people on the Sabbath. The problem is these haughty Pharisees and scribes kept the word of the law but misunderstood the spirit of the law that God loves people enough for Jesus to be in that room in the first place. That's good. And so because he was courageous, he stood. And he stood opposed to them throughout his ministry. The Sermon on the Mount. Let me, let me get to this. You're going to read, if you'll go to chapter 5 of Matthew and read through the Sermon on the Mount, that's just the beginning chapter, you're going to hear several times, you have heard it said, 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 like four or five times within chapter 5, you'll hear, you'll read, you've heard it said. This is why he says that in 20 through 22, let me just give you an example. He says, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder. That's the letter of the law. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. That's the letter of the law. But I say to you, but let me give you the spirit of the word. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. So he says, listen, you don't have to kill somebody to kill them. If you're bold enough, if you're mad enough at them that you would say, Racha, which is what I think believe the King James Version says, which is essentially what I just read to you then you're setting yourself up even for the fiery pits of hell as though you committed actual physical murder. And he says the same thing again every time he says, you have heard, you have heard, you have heard. He says, you've heard the letter of the law, but let me explain to you the spirit of the law. You have heard about adultery. You have heard about love your neighbor. You've heard about all of these things. But let me tell you, they're adhering to the letter of the law but they have no idea about the spirit of the law. That's why in, I believe it's uh, Matthew chapter 23, over and over and over again, he says, woe you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And then he, he spells out what they were hypocritical in. Let me tell you, 
You don't think that takes some brass? You got to be a, you got to be convictional and courageous enough to stand in front of people that have the authority to kill you and say you're wrong. And you know they didn't have authority to kill him. They did kill him because Israel was never a democracy. It was a theocracy, which means it was governed by the law of God, which means essentially the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees were the supreme court of the theocracy. So whatever they said goes. That takes some courage. Jesus fights for you because of who he is. His character is courageous. It's time the church got courageous too. Amen? When I said, chat, yeah, it was chapter 23. I wanted to make sure I was right. I had it handwritten on the side of my notes. We have to be courageous too. That's why Jesus said, even in, in the face of them watching him, he knew what they were thinking. He said, get up and come here. Whole time, you, you know he just felt the stares on the back of his neck. And he's 100% God too, so he knew what they were thinking. And he said to them, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath to save a life or to, ki to, save a life or to kill? He said, you tell me. Is it better I just let this guy suffer? Would God prefer that this guy suffer? Would God prefer this guy just die so that you can keep the sanctimonious, uh, your sanctimonious understanding of the law? Because you don't know the heart of God, you try to cut everybody else out from the heart of God? And this is what happened. And they, and they were silent. <laughs> I love that. You know why? Because that's what cowardice does. The courageous, when standing on the truth, will always silence the dissenter. That's enough of that. You guys ever looked at your kids and go, that's enough. You have the authority, you have the ability, you have the wisdom to know I'm not dealing with that, and so you stand opposed to it, and everything else has to bow in reverence to that authority. And that's exactly what they did. Jesus said, yeah, I'm gonna, I know most of the time you hear this passage taught, you, talk, you hear about the authority of Jesus. But I want to tell you that he is courageous because of the authority that he carries. He did heal. He is still capable of healing. It's time that we stop, and it's so easy to do, recoiling from the society we live in and say, man, I don't really want to have this conversation with you because I don't want to offend you. Jesus would offend them, if, if nothing else, by just telling them the truth. Not intentionally offensive, but he was not afraid to offend them with the truth. And we need to start getting the same way. The world is dying because the Christian has stayed silent too long. Amen? We could go on and on about that. I'm not going to. My wings start twitching and all that. But, but let me tell you, it's time that the church stands up. The church has to stand up. And this is in verse 5. This is the last thing I will tell you. That Jesus fights for you because he's compassionate. In verse 5. It says, after looking around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of their heart. 
and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. I've told you guys, compassion is mercy in action. I can have mercy all day long. Oh, man, I feel so bad for you. But if I'm not willing to move that mercy into action, it's not anything other than apathy. I don't care enough about you to solve your problem. But that's not the Jesus we serve. He cared enough about us to solve our problem. I want you to pay attention to some verbiage within this verse. It says, he was angry and grieved because he recognized the hardness of their heart. I told you earlier in the sermon, this little teaching or whatever you would title it, that Jesus loved those people, the hypocrite, as much as he loved the saint. What they did makes him righteously indignant. And what we do makes him righteously indignant. But you know what? He also grieves over us. And because he grieves over us and desires better for us, his heart breaks because he's compassionate. Because he extended mercy to us in action through the work of the cross. And the best we can do is spend the rest of our life trying to emulate him. Amen.